0: And we are live. So people are just going to start feeding in now. We'll see the participants go up and up. Um hey everyone, welcome to the um Proto-Lost Cell Surgery. Um we're at episode 10. Um La decima we're calling it internally. Um, and we're so glad that you're able to join us today. And those of you listening on Spotify as well, welcome. Hope everyone is safe and um, following the local government guidelines. Um, and and keeping well during this time. So far on the podcast, we've talked about a number of different items. We've gone from voice notes, to managing our emotions, to prospecting, to creating common goals. Um, And for this week's episode, we're going to be talking about opportunity. So this is um, the best way that we can grow and develop. Um, Talking about selling within a crisis, um, and how we can lead and manage throughout as well. I guess as we have a bit more free time now, um, without the need of commuting, um, and also the change in landscape, it seems more appropriate than ever to discuss this topic. We're joined today uh, by Dominic Monkhouse, um, a scale-up expert, um, he's coached numerous business leaders, as well as successfully leading businesses through growth in both of the last recess- recessions. So we are, we're massively grateful for your time here, Dom. Um, thank you so much, how are you doing?
1: I'm good. I'm good. It's a sunny day here in Wiltshire. A bit windy, but lovely. I'm happy. Everyone's safe. Good. Love it.
0: So um, we, we kind of, I, I mentioned it a little bit. We're talking about the current crisis. Um, what's your current outlook of the situation? And, and maybe why should we not be scared with what's going on?
1: Uh, I suppose I look at my own, my own experience and I, you know, I joined Rackspace in, a uh, couple of weeks before 9/11, so the the dot-com bubble had burst. Then 9/11 happened, and and the business had three months' cash, and we survived and went on to build a billion-dollar business. And then at IT Lab, small businesses in London stopped spending, and the business went from eight million to five million. And we totally transformed that business in the next two years. And then in 2009, I started Pier one down in Southampton. And we took that business to 30 million in the UK and to $200 million globally. And so my experience in recessions is uh, there are still companies that win. There are still companies that are spending money. You might have to be faster and leaner and smarter. But, you know, if you can attract, you're able to attract better people on your journey and, and the competition falls away. So you get to be a bigger fish in a smaller pond i think if you do it right
0: amazing so you you mentioned that they're kind of being faster leaner stronger how how do we do that how do we pivot in this landscape to be able to to do that well
1: i think i think the um what happens is because you've got pressure to do things you can do things really really quickly and i was talking to one of my clients uh last week and they and they they'd done something in three weeks that they'd been trying to do for two years. And so, you know, there's a crisis, people come together, people are prepared to let go of the status quo. You know, if you've got a burning platform, people can pull together and maybe their, their own sort of fiefdom or their own uh, thinking about their own job or their own department, you know, people are prepared to come together to solve a problem, a big problem in a short space of time. And I think that can galvanize, the team, and then then you can get some success.
0: And and you mentioned as well surrounding yourself with the right people. Um, you've recruited numerous numerous salespeople throughout. How uh, how do you surround yourself with the right kind of people? What what do you look for when you're doing that?
1: Um. Well, with 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 salespeople, uh, I yeah, we're not I, the easier. <laughs> no, no. Right, look, I I I think. Uh, I think you, I'm always looking for A players in any role in the, in the business. And for me, an A player is the top 10% of available talent for a given job in a given location for a given salary. So I try to work out, you know, and, and often I find that if you pay more, you don't necessarily get better people. But, but if you're trying to get that top 10%, you want them to be attracted to come and work for you. And, and, pe- and A players want to work with A players. You know, if you're, if you're a fantastic footballer, you don't want to play in the third division. You know, you want to play in the Premier League. You want to play with other great people because you only get better if you're playing with better people. And so that's what you're trying to attract. You're trying to say, look, this is a team of A players. We're going to play together. We're going to get better. We're going to give people coaching. There's going to be development opportunities. But if I look at a salesperson's CV and it doesn't, have their, it doesn't have their target on, an attainment of target, Either they're not a salesperson or they have failed to hit their target. And either way, I probably wouldn't talk to them. And then when I get salespeople in for interview, I'm, I'm looking for people who've, I'm not looking for the 20% of successful salespeople who are motivated by money. I'm actually looking for the 80% of successful salespeople who are motivated intrinsically by the positive impact that what they sell has on their customer. Um, and so, you know, that's, I built, I built, I built teams. I built teams that aren't in it for the money. I built teams that are in it because they believe in the product. I think you can sell stuff you don't believe in, but I don't, I don't think that's, that's how you build a sustainable business.
0: Ben, Ben, um, Ben Hunt Davis is talking about a similar thing, actually, getting people that believe in the, the common goal and the why. Um and, and I guess galvanizing the group towards a common goal. So um, within Pareto, Rackspace was, was infamous for having an incredibly incredible culture. Um, what do you think are the key attributes um, that create such a great culture and, and how do
1: you manage that? Well, we, we decided that we weren't really an IT business. We decided that we were a services business that just happened to be in IT and we looked at other great services businesses like, say, Ritz Carlton Hotel Group. And we said, look, they're a great service business that's in the hotel business. And so they're our model. Our, our customer, our competitors weren't our model. We weren't trying to be better than BT or better than cable and wireless or better than Colt, who were, when I started that business in the UK, our, the three largest hosting providers in the UK. We said we're a services business and they're not. And oh, okay. so we're going to be our strategy is to be different. Our strategy is not to try and do what they do, but better than them. It's to do something different, um, and so that's what we did. So we hired people, we hired IT people who got service, and we hired salespeople who could understand our mission, and they sold to customers who valued the service that that we delivered. Um, and I mean, years later, I had you know I would I would occasionally get phone calls from customers who'd been customers of mine at Rackspace, who uh, you know who were who, had, who, who needed to do something and, and they, were, they thought that the culture that we might have created at Pier 1 would be as good as the, the business we'd created at Rackspace. And so, you know, they'd, they'd say, we've got this project, Let's, we're going to give you a call and see, see if you can help us. Um, I'm still, and it's funny, I was, I was talking to somebody that I, used to be a client of mine at Rackspace uh, the other day. He's now got a travel business. And so, you know, I, I've ended up building amazing relationships with some of the people I worked with, but also some of the customers who we helped out.
0: So they're following you rather than, the, I guess, the product because
1: of that service. Yeah, because they just think that a business that I'm involved in probably has a great service culture. And, and then you've got to say, well, what are the behaviors? And, and again, some of the things that our competitors were doing at the time was, and in fact still are, they're saying, you know, we, work, we don't want to deliver unprofitable service. And that, that you know, with our mantra of fanatical support, that was, that was never our thing. We would, we, would go, we would do whatever it needed to do and profitability was secondary. You know, if we if we had happy cust if we had happy employees, so, you know, if you hire A players and you create the right environment, you have happy, happy, happy staff. Your customers will never love your company unless your staff love it first. And so hire great people, give them something important to do, deliver great service and uh, support them, get out their way and they'll deliver great stuff to customers. But then don't do daft stuff like, say, oh, we only want to deliver profitable service or we only want to deliver great service to some of our customers because then that's, that's, that's a mixed message and that's really difficult for people to follow through on. Absolutely. And how,
0: how, would, you, how would you manage that within the business? Like, um, what happened if you saw there wasn't great service being delivered? How would you manage
1: that for well, you know, the uh, the way in which we ended up writing the core values of the business uh, and and scaling the culture, there was an account manager who came to me in the early days and she said, look, Dom, you've hired this sales guy. And I just, she said, I just don't think he fits. And I said, well, why don't you think he fits? And she gave me a list of five things that she thought, you know, he was lazy and, and various other things, and and I said, look, that's <laughs> that's not that's not really helpful, right? Uh, go away and turn out, turn this list of behaviours into fifteen positive things. So, uh, you know, this racker is always on time. This racker has great uh, great communication skills, and we turned it into fifteen positive behaviours. And for a while, we used that as our employee. So every quarter, the employees would rate each other on a scale of one to five, and wow. who was at the top and who was at the bottom. And the people at the bottom, we wouldn't tell that we would tell them that we're at the bottom and I would have some intervention with them. The person at the top, you know, he and his wife or he and his partner would get a weekend away in a hotel. So we're absolutely celebrating the people who did the right things. And we're having an intervention with the people, the people at the bottom. And one of the guys who actually came bottom, Dave was uh, David was one of the engineers and he was bottom because he never answered the phone. And so the guy said, look, we marked him down because when the phone rings, he just looked busy. Yeah. And 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 I told him that, and the next quarter he was employee of the quarter. And so, absolutely, the power of direct feedback that relates to behaviours, and then those behaviours morphed into a series of core values, and then those core values were part of our hiring process, and those core values were part of our behavioural uh, pro program in terms of you know what's your personal development plan, what do you need to improve to get promoted. Um, and, and where social currency got doled out. So, you know, we're certainly in the office in Stockley Park, we had a big wall where people would catch each other doing the right thing, stick it on a poster, it note, put it on the wall. And they were things we referred to in the, in the all hands meeting every month.
0: How would you, that, that, because that sounds really good and it's, it's similar to a lot of cultures that we now see and how we celebrate success. So in this current situation, we're all working from home unless we are, I guess our, our job is vital to the support, which are in the office. How would you manage a similar culture in this current situation?
1: Well, it's interesting. I, I, think, uh, I think some of my clients have, have done this better than others. And certainly some of my clients have done it better than other, other companies I've spoken to. If you look at something like the Gallup Q12, which is a, a sort of a measure of employee engagement, then the first question is, I know what's expected. Of me and the and inferences of every day at work. And so, one of the things that we do with clients is we say, Do all of your staff have a a daily KPI? So, is there a thing that at five o'clock, you know, because if you played, you do play team sport? Have you ever played a team sport?
0: It doesn't look like I did, but I did when I was <laughs> a little bit younger.
1: Yeah, I did. I what did, did, did you play? uh football's the main one, but I played a bit okay. less than. Okay right so you play football there's white lines we know when the ball's in play you know 11 players on each side everyone's got a role uh, there's a timer and we know the score right and so and and you've got a coach say so you've got a job to do on the field your teammates are relying on you the team can't win if one of the players is completely rubbish or absent without leave and people can see the score and the timer's ticking down and so you know i think business is a team sport and and everybody on the team needs to know the part that they're due to play. Everybody needs to know what the score is. And so it gets, to the, it gets to five o'clock and you go, did I have a good day? Did I do what the team and the company were expecting of me today? And if you do, you can go, brilliant, I've had a good day. Pat yourself on the back and you're done. If it gets to the end of the day and you go, I just spent all day on email I don't know whether I achieved anything. It just gets depressing, and I think I think if you're not in an office environment, having a chat by the coffee machine, you know, having a game of pool or playing darts, you know, you could those I could see those people getting more and more depressed. And uh, and certainly uh, one of the guys that we work with, uh, Nick Marks, who's got a company called Friday Pulse that do an online staff engagement tool that goes out every week, he published some data last week that showed that employee happiness. Uh, globally, went off a cliff at coronavirus, when coronavirus hit, and it went off a cliff for all its clients simultaneously. And it's come back a bit, but it hasn't come back to where it was. People are actually less happy working from home than they were before when they were working in the office. And I think a lot of it has to do with that. You know, there's a load of social interaction that you get that that lifts you up. Um, and so you, that, that so that's good. I know some of my clients do. I do in sort of coffee morning, 11 o'clock, get a coffee, sit down and chat to your mates on on zoom but i think the other thing is if you're if you're on a mission if you've got a purpose in your business you need to know that you're making you're making and doing something towards that every day and so if you don't have a daily kpi actually sales often sales sales is the bit in the organization that where people would have that you know because mm-hmm. you've got you might have uh you know you might have sales targets to hit you know you've got your lagging indicator but your leading indicator is daily activity you know you're your team probably is saying, look, we all know if we make, you know, hundred calls a day, speak to 20 people, have five meaningful conversations and we're for two hours or some version of that, yeah, you know, we'll hit, yeah. the, we'll hit, we'll hit the number. So you get to the end of the day, you know, you get, you get a sense of I might not have closed the deal, but at least I've, I've done the work that would lead me towards a deal today. Um, but in other parts of businesses, people just don't have any of that. Um, and I think, I think it's interesting because those companies that are saying, you know what, we're not going to have any offices, we're going to get rid of offices and we're going to save all of our money on real estate. I think those companies are absolutely on a hiding to nothing because I think that to me, that feels like those businesses don't value a culture. And I think it's so much harder to build a culture remotely than it is to build a culture face to face. Yeah, it is. I, I completely agree because I think if,
0: if we'd have gone back to the start of the year and they'd have said, Jack, you're going to have two months where you're working from home. You don't have to commute in. You, you save on travel. You're still doing your role. Um, you would look at that and think, yeah, that's, that's positive. I, I wouldn't mind a situation where I can work like that. But the reality of it is, it's, you're on your own, speaking to people. You only speak to them if you've got a question. And it's not just as a chat or to gain some support or anything like that. So it is quite hard. And, we, and it's really apparent as this week, we're coming to the end of the kind of mental health awareness week. Um, and more and more we're looking at how this is going to impact us long term um, and I think yeah looking at daily input that you can have to achieve something each day is, is really really important um, and you said you'd put that around activities not just in terms of sales targets so how would you if you were if you were an entry-level salesperson who maybe wasn't given that guidance what would you set yourself as a target every day in order to be to
1: achieve during this time, um, I, I suppose my I I suppose my the thing I pull out and I start with is look if you are having five meaningful conversations uh, a day, you know you back yourself that one of those is going to move forward. And so how many times do you need to pick up the phone? And maybe at the moment you need to pick up the phone more and send more emails than normal to have five meaningful conversations. Although, you know, I speak to some salespeople and they say their customers are at work and their customers seem to have more time and actually are, uh, are more available. And I speak to other sales teams and they're finding it really, really difficult. Um, but it's, it, you know, in your team, you know, you can look at your team. So you've got your individual numbers, you can look at your team's activity. What does, I I remember, I remember at Rackspace, uh, we, I did some analysis and I realized that for every minute that the sales team spent on the phone, they would generate a pound of monthly recurring revenue. And I looked at the best performing salesperson and they were spending four hours a day on the phone talking to clients or prospects. And I looked at the rest of the team and the average was down at sort of one and a half. And I said to the team, look, what do we need to do? What's the minimum standard here for keeping your job? And they agreed that three hours was probably the right number. And we just shared the data. We put, you know, people didn't need to be beaten over the head. It was, it was, here, was the, here was the list, how many hours on the phone. This is the scorecard. This is where you sit on the league table. And the people at the bottom could manage, frankly, manage themselves yeah. up, up the list and hit their numbers. Um, and I remember I take I take that I take that incident with me wherever I've been, so that we you know, we're not in that position to have to fix it again. And you know that's the type of stuff I do with clients as well. You know, what's your activity? I've never been into a company where the sales team is failing, and they were doing enough. Like this, it, like to me, if the lagging indicator remained, I look to the leading indicator and I say, okay, well, why are we failing? And my experience is always that people are not doing enough of the right thing. And so then it's like, what's the right thing? And, and let's do, let, how do we work out that we do more of that? Sometimes they, their companies have conspired against them and their salespeople are also in account management roles and they've got customer service to do, and they've got this to do, and they've got this to do. And it's like, look, if you're a salesperson and, and, and your superpower is that when you get on the phone or in front of a prospect, you can persuade them to do something that they weren't planning to do this morning, that's sales. That's a superpower. No business survives without salespeople. But then companies give the people with that superpower loads of other shit to do, and <laughs> and so and so you know there you are. And you've got a you know you've got you've just got all these rules and it's just like loads of admin. Like yeah. look, you can pay somebody you can pay somebody to do admin. You don't need somebody with a superpower to do admin. So you know if your sales team are crap at CRM, just pay somebody else to keep their data. Like if they can sell should be spending 80% of their time in a conversation in a selling conversation and and take all the other rubbish away and not the non-sales stuff it's not rubbish but it's you know like if you're a sales guy yeah, it's rubbish course, I right and if you're account and if you're an account manager and you're doing customer service and sales look I, are you sales or are you customer service and go get a job in sales if you're a seller and if you're not a seller go and get a job in customer service don't do don't do a half don't do a half a half job because it like that's just you know, they're really hard to hire for those people. I love customer service work and I can sell. Yeah, no, but I could find somebody who's better at both. I could Absolutely. find somebody who really loves customer service and I could find somebody who's definitely a better salesperson than you.
0: It's and this is a common theme that's coming from our um our sales surgeries is that um know you and know your worth and know your skills and then focus on that, especially during this time as well, and knowing where you serve yourself best and Look, one of the things coming from it is, is practicing doing what you're doing. And if you practice doing anything, you'll get better at it. But focus on <laughs> what your success is. Honestly, it's...
1: Are you a better golfer than you were five years ago? Uh, yes. And why is that? Just. Um, why is that? Because I played more. Yeah. But you see, that, so normally people say because they practiced.
0: But oh, I mean, gosh, I've for all that by the way, (laughs) and you get a different answer.
1: (laughs) See, I I ask people often that, and I say, you know, who plays golf? Are you better than you were 10 years ago? Most of the time, half the room puts their hand up to say they play golf, and then they put their hands down to say they're not any better than they were. So they enjoy playing, right? They're in the, you know, they do it because they enjoy playing. They don't do it because they want to get better at it. You know, so do you want to be in the Premier League or do you want to be in the Beer League, right? And so what we do with sales, which is really weird, is salespeople hate practising. Right, um, but if you're a sales leader, you've got to make your teams practice, because otherwise, you're taking a lead or an opportunity, and we're practicing on clients or we're practicing on prospects. Why would we do that? If your doctor said, "Oh, brain surgery, excellent, Jack. I've never done it before, but I thought I'd practice on you," you'd be like, "Get away from me, you <laughs> lunatic!" Yeah, yeah. Right? And so and so nobody put the beer down as well. <laughs> totally. So <laughs> nobody, nobody else would assume that. You know, or if you, you know, if you were a lawyer, you wouldn't go, oh, well, you graduated from university with a law degree and you never studied again. Or you're a doctor. Oh, yeah, you did. You did your medical. You did your medical qualification 20 years ago. Have you done any more training since? No, no. Like, you think that was mad. But yeah. in sales, we do it to ourselves. We're like, we're sort of, uh, you know, we, like, we want you. The best people are learning and practicing all the time. It, they see it as their, they see it as a craft that they have to master. And that's why when Harvard Business Review did an article on what the, the anatomy of high-performing salespeople, only 15% of salespeople regularly hit their target year in, year out in, in different companies. The other 85% were just sort of, because they didn't see it as a profession and they weren't professional about it. You know, it was like kick about in the park rather than be a professional footballer. I mean, how many times do you meet somebody who says, oh yeah, I know I could have prayed professionally. They might have had the talent. What they didn't have was they didn't have the fortitude to put in the effort to practice when nobody was looking. You know, you'll read stories of David Beckham, you know, playing, in the, playing outside with a football in the rain hours and hours and hours. And then there are other people who probably have the same innate talent who were inside watching telly. And that doesn't get you to, you know, become a professional footballer.
0: Can you, can you create that within someone? that um i guess desire to perfect their craft or in your experience has it been people that have come to you with that desire that have then excelled or have you seen it being instilled in some in someone
1: so so you see the thing is i i i think there's an an innate thing or what do or how do i go and find that weak signal for that so i hire i've often hired people who've played team sports because if you want to play a team sport through school or university you know, to be in the team on a Saturday, you probably have to train on a Tuesday and a Thursday in the rain in January when you'd rather be doing a million other things. And so if those people have shown that they're prepared to take pain and misery uh, to get something they enjoy doing. And so they've often been uh, the people that I've hired to put into sales roles because I just think they've shown that they're prepared to do this. They're prepared to yeah. sacrifice for something. So I, what I, 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 you can't make people change. So if you can spot that they've done something in another realm, you can probably get that to come across.
0: I understand. And Karina, thanks for the message in the chat. I, I forgot to say at the start, but guys, if you do have a question for Dom throughout, please just post it in the Q and A or the chat. I'll do my best to answer of them. Um, Karina is talking about the, your, your point of salespeople wanting, hating to practice. Okay, but she's saying it comes from a fear of making mistakes and getting laughed at as opposed to just not wanting to do it. How do you create a a safe environment for salespeople to practice without that fear of Um, of,
1: um, um, look, I think I think sales is great fun. Right. So I I, I'm a sales guy and and I love selling and um, I will practice sales on people who are never going to buy from me. So I do that, right? So I'll take a sale. If you, if you rang me up and I thought, there's no way you're ever going to buy from me, I'll probably still talk to you. And I might, and, and I might deliberately use that as an ex- excuse to practice something because I know I can't lose. Um, but the other thing is, is often if, if you've got people and you need to know some product or you need to know a script, uh, one of the things we did at, um, at Pier One is we had, we had sort of the, the Pier One backstory. We had a, we had a sales playbook. And when new starters came, they had to read the playbook and then do an office tour to tell the story as part of an office tour. And the team, the team would give them feedback on that. Um, I think one of the other things to do is you you can put people in a you can put you can put a group together, and you have to keep passing the baton. So you know somebody plays the client, and you know you know you know how that game gets played. And then yeah. everybody everybody, frankly, because the way you you do the game, sort of passing the baton through the sales practice. Like everybody falls flat on their face, don't they? Um, and if you're, if you're the guy facilitating that, you can make sure that the smug people fall flat on their face just as quickly as the, as the people who might be a little shy or a bit introvert or a bit, a bit worried. And as a sales manager or as a sales leader or as a facilitator of, of those sessions, that's your job is to try and make sure everybody gets something out of it and has fun and that they aren't, they aren't uh, scared or worried about it because otherwise you're not doing your job, which is to get the most from the team you've got
0: and if you're if you're you're wanting to practice outside of a team environment on your own at home is there anything
1: oh, look, i, really I well i th- i th- i think i think you can do it all you can do it with people all the time you can you know you can turn up at a hotel or you can turn up at an airport airport reservation desk or you can be buying something in a shop and you can practice you know your different bits of your technique or you can practice negotiation or you know um, there's always things you can do. You can practice on your family, practice on your children. Um, you know, if you've got if you've got a methodology and you can break it down into chunks that you can practice. You know, you can spend a week just practicing one bit. You know, or even even in the in the sales calls that you're doing, you go okay. Where do I, if you can, if you've got a methodology and you can deconstruct it, you can say, okay, this bit, I'm going to work on this bit this week. So I'm going to be really conscious of that. And every call I have, I'm going to pin a note underneath my monitor to remind me to do this. And so in every one of those calls, I'm just going to work on this bit. The rest of it, I'll I'll sort of let it go. Um, And so, you know, that's one of the things that I find myself doing all the time when I'm having sales calls. I've got a methodology and I think back at the end of the call and I think, how did that go? What could have gone better? Uh, what did I forget to do what did I remember to do and and I can you know I can even practice in my own head without without needing to do it in front of other people but the other thing I love to do is is frankly it's a bit like the doctors you know uh, see one do one teach one as a way of uh, as a way of learning it and so you know wherever you are in your sales career wherever you sit there'll be something that you find easier than other people And so, you know, if you can, if somebody, if you can go teach other people to do something, you have to really know it at a different level. And so, you know, even if it's not practicing, even if it's like, we need to break the methodology up, right? Jack, you're going to teach this bit. Dom, you're going to teach this bit. Okay, next week we come and I teach you and you teach me. Um, You will know the bit that you've had to teach me so much deeper than if you've just sort of done it a bit and thought about it. Um, And so that's a nice way to do it as well. You can do it in, you can do it in, um, Uh, You can do it in pairs even. You can have accountability partners in your team, even if your manager's not very good, and heaven forbid there were some poor sales managers out there. Um, Thanks for the the comments, uh, Tom.
0: Um, Yeah, recording will be shared on Spotify after this, so probably beginning next week week we'll have it on Spotify. Um, Tom, I was going to ask you a question around buyer behavior. You mentioned it a little bit um, in terms of industries, and people are going to be seeing different... um, different levels of success at the moment but are you with your clients you're working with are you seeing any difference in buyer behavior and given the current crisis
1: um yeah I think uh, I think this is where I go back to my my own experience of the last couple of recessions and I think I think when times are good and people have got a long-term view uh they they they're prepared to take a view around ROI, or you know, we know this is the right thing to do, so we're going to do it. I think when when times are like this and companies are thinking, we've got to make sure we keep a hold of our cash. People are buying in a much more defensive mindset, and so you know, it's like what is what is the smallest thing that you can sell? Uh, how can you show that you can get the fastest return on investment? Um, they also have got they're also thinking about themselves. So buyers are always thinking about themselves and the company, but also You know, even especially now, you know, what is it that I can do to to maybe even protect my job in the company? I need a win. So, you know, how can how does your product or solution or service help help Jack win and and help Pareto win? And I've got to I've got to help you and your company over overcome fear. I've got to help you and your company understand that this is a thing that you need to do now, not next year. Um, and so what's my angle? How do I do that? How can I, you know, is there something around T's and C's? Is there something about brand promise and guarantees? Is there something about how we finance it? Is there, is there something about how I've got some skin in the game or something how I can reference um, how you will get a return on your investment quickly or time to value? And I think that people people will be nervous about committing because they don't know yet how, how the recession is going to play out for them. For them, or their company, and so what can you do to make them to make your your product or your solution or service have a short term benefit um, and then I think that's where that's where you win. I think what will happen is that this will just accelerate a whole lot of a whole load of stuff so you know uh, movement to the cloud that will move faster um, you know remote working. You know, my clients who are in, who are MSPs, who are selling remote working solutions, they've had a great, they had a great March and a great April. Um, of course, so,
0: businesses in two weeks had to set up their whole teams working remotely, didn't they? Which wasn't Yes. A, which wasn't on the board at all before.
1: Yes. And, and and those people who are, those people who are selling, selling vitamins and not painkillers, they will find life really hard. So if you're selling something which is a nice to have, not a need to have, it's it's how can you, how can you, How can you think about, and that's one of the things I've been doing with clients over the last few weeks is, is those clients who felt they had products or services that fitted into that, how are they thinking about, well, what sales can I make this side of Christmas? What about my product or service can a client see value this side of Christmas? Because that way they can continue to build their pipeline. Whereas if it's, if you buy this now, you won't see any benefit till next Easter. Well, you know, that's going to be tough to get those to clients to make it to commit they'll be conserving cash. That makes complete sense. Um, Karina's asked
0: or hasn't really asked a question, but she's got a new team started just before the virus hit. Um, so they're a great bunch, trying to help inspire as much as possible. If you bring on a team and they're starting in a remote, um, remotely working, which some businesses may move to that now, what, what measures and structures would you put in place? A lot of what you've talked about is, is getting teams together and, and helping support together. Is there anything... You would suggest to do with these individuals if they're starting remotely?
1: Yeah, I think I think you've got to think about what happens in the office. And in the office, some of the things you might do is you might bring the team together and you might all be working on a thing at the same time. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I do with the, my team here is we do a daily huddle. So we huddle for 15 minutes every morning. We say, look, what's the what? What impact are we hoping to have today? Uh, what where did we get through? What we needed to do yesterday? What where were we stuck? We also huddle at the end of the day to share, share the success that we've had in the day. But I think that goes back to my analogy earlier with football and the white lines and the score, you know, you can say to your team, right, we're all going to do this for the next 90 minutes. And even though we're not in the same room, get people doing the same activity together, you know, and you can have WhatsApp running or teams or whatever your your chat app of choices and people can be sharing their success, you know, virtually ringing the bell when they're closing a lead or, or finding an opportunity or, or having a good call. And then, and then, you know, don't, you know, what I do when I'm doing virtual delivery is, is we take, we take a break of at least 15 minutes every 90 minutes and we have an hour for lunch. Because it's just tiring being on Zoom all day. So, you know, make sure that you block the days out and, and help people give them that structure. Because in the office, you'd be able to walk up and say, so, Jack, how's it doing? You know, what are you doing? You might, you might want to time block your day. And so helping people by imposing a structure on them. And if they're successful, then like take the stabilizers off the bike. They can do whatever they like. But what you're trying to do with a new team is you're trying to say, here's, here's, here's our activity roadmap. And if you do these chunks, in, enough of these chunks like this, we reckon you'll be successful. So uh, enforcing some structure till people are successful can be really helpful. It gives them a sense that you know what you're doing as a manager and that you've got their best interests at heart. But the moment that they're successful, let them go off piste and, and and try you know, more of this, less of that, more of this, so to see if they can actually be even more successful. And then when they do that, you can say, hey, look, you know, Jack did that. Maybe the rest of the team should think about doing more of that. And so, you know, the team are then able to contribute to the, the team goal by each person running their own little experiments.
0: That's really good. And, and I'm just thinking as well: is there any literature or any any books or any podcasts or anything in particular you'd get? somebody to read is just starting to give them kind of a, a point in the right direction. I'm so, listening to the sales surgeries, obviously, and the, the melting pot. <laughs> as two podcasts. Uh, I,
1: it's funny. There's a, there's a sales book that I read earlier this year called the machine. And uh, in it, the author, uh, Justin, he's been on the podcast. What he says is, look, uh, mostly sales is like artisan, right? So the industrial revolution has left the sales the sales team behind, and it's time they caught up. So he said, look, in manufacturing we've got lean manufacturing, in 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 software development we've got um, uh, you know we've got the way in which we do uh, software development. But he said sales is we've still got people going out and effectively you know cutting down their willows and basket weaving and then going to market and selling it. Like salespeople are doing are sort of jacks of all trades. And so he takes an engineering mindset and he applies it to sales. And he says, look, you need to break sales down into unique phases and have, and have se- specialists doing each phase. Um, you know, so don't, don't, don't hire a great sales guy and have him doing his own prospecting and booking his own diary and doing his own CRM, and doing his own expenses. If you've got a great sales talent, build an organization around them so that they can focus on the thing that they have a superpower in, which is selling. And so the machine, so he also thinks that no salespeople should get commission. Um, so there's some stuff in there that you may or may <laughs> not agree with. Right. Uh, but no comment. but I've, And, and what, what I've done is I, all the things that he talks about, all of the, all of the, the bits of his methodology. I've implemented them all somewhere, but what I haven't done is I haven't implemented them all together in one place. Um, and so what I'm doing is I'm working with him and, and some clients at the moment to actually implement his methodology a, end to end. And wow. so if you're, if you're thinking about your sales team and you're thinking about where, where could I get some in performance improvement? I think reading the machine, uh is a fantastic place to start because it will help you get clear about how you could break it all down into a whole series of logical steps
0: brilliant that's really useful that's really because i was listening to another of your podcasts with um the ceo of makers academy I think it was yeah the yeah 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 yeah, yeah um and they were talking about no commission there as well and about setting setting your own basic salary and setting your like own that, salary yes yeah
1: like incredible stuff, uh, some, well, so uh, yeah so uh, because because their core customer is sort of a 27 year old person who has realized that they wish they'd done software development later so you know they get the 27 and they're doing something else and they go you know I really want to be a developer so they've got to have about 12,000 pounds in the bank because the course costs I think something and then you've got to live as well while you're yeah. doing the 12 week course Um, and and because they're changing lives, the salespeople have a very powerful purpose. And so from their perspective, they, you don't need to pay them. They, from the sales team, they, they, in fact, the sales team said they would quit if they got paid commission because they feel as though this is about changing lives and not about earning money. Um, and the basic salary, set your own salary, is that uh, you, you might feel at some point that you're underpaid um, and so, you know, rather than go to your manager and say I'm underpaid, and he goes tough, suck it up, or don't worry, leave then, or whatever, or, or maybe gives you maybe he gives you a pay rise. You've worked they say with, nice managers, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what what they say is like you have to go out and you have to you have to write down you have and and it's sort of essay format, you know. So you're going to have to write a sort of four page essay, right? Um, and so because it costs a bit, it has to be slightly. It has to be slightly difficult. And so if you believe that you're underpaid for the value you deliver, you have to write down how you, how you understand the value that you deliver. So what is it that I do for this company and why is it valuable to the company? And then you have to go to the market and you have to say, in the market, hiring somebody to deliver that value would cost this. And so, and then what you have to do is you have to take it to four of your colleagues and your colleagues have to agree with you that the value that you think you deliver is true and it's not just in your head. And they have to show, and you have, and they have to believe that the external validation is also true. If those things are right, then you take it to finance and you give yourself a pay rise. Wow. And so in the podcast at the end, I say to him, haven't you got some people who are underpaid? And he said, yeah, I've got some people who can't be asked to to go through exactly the paperwork, that. to go through the paperwork. So they, he said, I know that they're underpaid, but the, we've changed the process. I can no longer give them a pay rise. That's not the process we have in the business. Exactly. So I have to encourage them to go through the process or, it, but it's funny cause I remember uh, talking to somebody at uh, T-Mobile and they introduced a mobile tariff where what they did is every six months they texted you to tell you that you were, if you, to tell you if you were on the most, the cheapest tariff. And so the accounts are going, oh, my God, we're just giving away all this margin. We're going to tell the customers they could switch tariff and they'd, they'd pay less. What they found is that most customers couldn't be bothered. right? Yeah. Because they, you, had, you had to do something to change the tariff. And, um, and, but everybody thought that T-Mobile were amazing because they told you. And so they felt warm and fuzzy about T-Mobile, even if they hadn't actually changed tariff. Uh, and uh, Simon's saying, is it the machine by justin roth marsh and it is indeed the machine by justin roth good
0: stuff so we, we talked a little bit your t-mobile example brings me on to customer interaction customer churn um what's your best piece of advice to how should we be treating our customers right now what should we be doing to um ensure that we're not losing out
1: shall i can i get the flip chart out of course you can of
0: course you can right let's make this interactive uh, Look, let me... Uh, I, actually, two, I actually wanted <laughs> you to get the flip chart out from the start. I'm glad <laughs> that you suggested
1: it. So, look, there is, uh, uh, there is uh, there's, there's a thing. There's a uh, uh, Daniel Kahneman, um, behavioural scientist, Nobel Prize for economics for this. This is his thing called the peak end rule. So when you think about your, your, what was the most, what was the, what was the highlight of 2019 for you? For me, um, was achieve
0: was in impersonally or within an account or? Just pick my highlight. one highlight. What? Uh, it was beating Beth Edmondson uh, target of revenue by just under a thousand pounds.
1: Okay. And how did that make you feel? Oh, I was so relieved. <laughs> um, but I was, uh, yeah, I was really, really enjoyed it so his theory is about how we lay down memory and what it says is you can't have a memory without an emotion yeah and so what you did is you just went straight to an emotion i can see it in your eyes right when you're when you're remembering that thing so what he says is what people do is they remember the peak emotion and they remember the last one and so if you're thinking about customers particularly in a service thing if you if you have a if you have a if you have a dip then your, your average will be negative. If you have a plus and the last one is down here, then your average is up here. What happens if people, if people are below the line, they churn. When it comes to renewal, they churn. What they don't do is they don't buy from you the next project. And, and so what you have to do is you have to say, okay, well, how do I create an emotional high for my customers? And if particularly if you're an account manager and you're thinking about churn, you know, one of the things we try and do is you, you try and say, look, we will need to sell something to a customer maybe six months before, Um, their renewal. Doesn't matter what it is. Don't care what it is. Doesn't matter how much expense but if you can't get a customer to buy from you six months in advance of a renewal, your renewal is at risk because they're not, they're not, they're not positive. They're negative. That's why they're not buying from you. And so you need to create some positive emotion with them to get them to purchase from you. And, uh, and so sales is all about feelings. You know, people only buy from you when they're in a feeling state and it's all emotion. Nobody, nobody buys a Hermes handbag because it's made from more expensive leather. It's how, when they buy that, it's how do they make them feel? And when their friends say, oh, look at your handbag, it's how does that make them feel, right? No. And so it's about success, right? And so it, whatever you're selling, you know, you've got to think what does the person who's buying from me feel? How do I want them to feel when they sign the contract? And then if they're, in a, if they're a customer, you need to keep them up here. So often people say, oh, well, I need to overpromise. I need to promise more. I need to promise more. But if I promise to, I don't know, if I promise to take you out to dinner next time I'm in London. Okay, good. Should we do that? Right. Promise yep. to take you out to dinner, Jack. Right. Now, okay, if, yeah. I don't ta- <laughs> if I don't I take you, you out. That. Yeah, done. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, so yeah. you're holding me to that. Now, so if I don't take you out to dinner, how will you feel? Uh, let down. Yeah, pissed. yeah. So you'll be down here. Right. I didn't so want to swear, me- but
0: yeah, no, me. no. So I've, I've <laughs> made
1: I've, I've made a promise and I haven't kept it. So negative emotion. And you, then that's what you remember. Yeah. Right. If, if I don't promise it, but I just turn up and take you out to dinner, what happens?
0: Yeah, I'm loving it. Let's go. You're
1: surprised. So you get we'll a positive emotion. Yeah. And so people do things like they say, Oh, we're going to create monthly reports for all of our clients. And they don't think to themselves, does anybody care? What they do is they put, a, they put an admin burden in their business. And then if they ever fail to deliver it, once they said they're going to promise to do a monthly report or a monthly account review, and then they don't do it, the clients hate them. And They never think if we do do it, does anybody surprise? So you're much better off to have a whole, and don't do birthday cards or Christmas cards because frankly, at the point that you're sending them out a Christmas card or a birthday card, they've got loads you're yeah. better off you're better off celebrating something else in their lives that that nobody else knows or nobody else remembers or you 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 run an event you say uh, it's jack's jack's golf tournament you don't say annual because next year when you don't get invited they'll hate you because you didn't get invited the next year so you just go hey we're having a golf tournament would you like to come or we we're, we're having dinner would you like to come and you don't promise and then deliver you just you make it a surprise and so s- some of that is Uh, So I love taking that sort of behavioral science stuff and saying, how do we apply that to sales? How do we apply that to new sales or account management? Um, And then the other thing I do is we've always done is net promoter score. You know, so if, you know, if you if I say, uh, would you recommend Pareto Law to a friend or colleague? I'm looking for you to give me a nine or a ten. If you don't give me a nine or a ten, you're not going to you're not going to chat about it in the pub and you're not going to buy from me next time sevens and eights are neutral. zero to six actually hate you and so you know net promoter score is is really useful as well if you're thinking about how do i make sure i mitigate churn
0: so so going back to the creating positive feeling and emotion around it because obviously we can't ask what would do that you're looking at under promising and over delivering um how would you identify within a customer what they would most
1: appreciate um I, I think this is uh, this is the type of stuff where you can you sort of say, OK, well, what's our budget? What okay. do we need to do? Um, and then and then surprising them. So, frankly, something small and a surprise can, yeah. can generate that. Right. So people are at home. You know, I don't know. Send them some beers. Send them a bottle of wine. Send them some chocolates. Send their wife chocolates. I mean, frankly, if you want to impress some bloke, you send his wife chocolates. You don't send him chocolates. Um, but it's it's what can I do? You know, it can be send them a T-shirt. It can be, I don't know, send them send them a book.
0: Can it just be a conversation of just saying, "Hope you like." hope you're well i guess oh yeah totally i mean it can
1: no you're you're absolutely right it can be right so instead of sending them an email you just ring them up say i'm how are you doing thinking of you and people go oh that's a surprise i didn't expect that positive emotion
0: amazing rather than i guess setting up a call and saying we'll have a weekly review
1: missing one week and then they're annoyed that all of that. Yeah. So it's it, all of that. And so, so people do that all the time. They, they think, Oh, the client would value this. Um, and, and we never get to the, does the client value it bit? We just assume they do. And then we're imperfect at delivering it.
0: Good stuff. So we've got 10 minutes left, um, of the chat, Dom, and I'm really enjoying it. I think we're covering some amazing stuff here. Um, what I always find is that it's all, it always, comes across so simply when we talk about it, but we just don't practice it enough that you've mentioned and that we've talked about here. Um, I guess what three tips would you give um, to, a, to a salesperson? Or I guess what are the three, better question, what three key skills would a salesperson have, do you believe, in order to achieve success?
1: Um, they, I think, listening, yeah. So I think one of the great sales books is uh, "Win Friends and Influence People," and the t- key takeaway from that is people don't give a shit about you ever. They only care <laughs> about themselves, morning, noon, and night. And <clears throat> so you abs- you just have to ask. I, and and you know my sales methodology is I just ask questions and I try and get people to suggest to themselves the next reasonable step that I'm expecting them to take, but I don't push them. I I just question them and ask them questions and ask them questions. So I think asking questions and listening, I don't know if they're, I don't know if they're two things, but they're definitely the same thing. I think, I think turning up and presenting, I hate that. I hate that. Like, you know, because that's about me. I've got my slide deck and I need to come and show you my slide deck. I have no idea. And I'm hoping that slide 32 is the what you know, like I'm, I'm hoping yeah, in my yes. 120 slides that one of them is interesting to you. Instead of saying, tell me, tell me about you, tell me about your business, tell me about your challenge, tell me about your problem, tell me about where you're stuck, you know, tell me stuff. And then I can say, I, I can help you. Here's how I can help you. And don't, you know, I, I did some work with a client uh, on sales uh, last year, and they had staff in Stockholm and it was in their deck that they had sta- they had an office in Stockholm with people in it, and they, nobody in the business could remember anyone giving a shit about the fact that they had people in Stockholm. Because, but they were excited about it because it was them and their business, and so it was in the deck. And it's like that happens so often. We're so inter- we're like, oh, what's what's important to us, and only give information to the client or the prospect that's important to the client.
0: Going back to listening. Um... How do you learn to be a better active listener? Because even on these podcasts, sometimes I listen back to them and think, I wasn't listening then. I've passively listened and I've just asked another question. Um, how do we practice to do that?
1: Do you see what I mean? No, I it's do. Easy. But I was, I was just not speaking. And so <laughs> the, thing, the thing we have to do is not speak, right? So I, 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 <laughs> I, you know, when we're, doing, when we're doing self, I just keep writing pause. And and it's, most, not all salespeople, but lots of salespeople are extrovert. and, And we can't bear silence. And so shut up. Like, you know, we ask a question and then we ask another question and then we ask a question and we answer it ourselves. And then we keep talking. And it's like, just ask them a question and shut up and let them talk. And then let them talk. And if you don't speak, they'll keep talking and you'll find out something really interesting. So, one of the things is if I come into you and I'm I'm selling to you and I say, Jack, what's your biggest problem? What do you do? You give me one, right? Give me one, right? And then I say, and what next? And what else? And you say another one. And I say, and what else? And you give me another one. Those first three things, they are not the reason you will buy. They are the reason you will not buy. I do not need to solve those problems. Most salespeople go, oh, brilliant. There's a thing. I'm going to start selling, I'm going to start pitching. I don't want to listen to him. I'm here to pitch at him. It's an hour meeting. I'm here to talk at you for 45 minutes. If I do an hour, I would like me to speak as little as possible. That's the most successful meeting in the world. And so I would say three, brilliant. And what else? And I'd write it down. And I'd write it down, I'd keep going. And I, we did this work with a client a couple of years ago and they said they got num- to number eight, they got the 18th reason from the client and that became a million pound a year project that before they would have just gone through, got to three and pitched. And so it's, it's don't think about the, it's, it's, that's why having the process is so important, having the, having the methodology in your head, because then it gives you the space to just listen. No, I
0: can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so the methodology, that's your sales process, right? In terms of your sales structure of how, how are
1: you going to go through the meeting? Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and so all I'm doing is I'm really saying, you know, I start, I, I, I start off and say, what's the global agenda? So, like, why are we here, right? And I would say, I would come into a meeting and I would say, Jack, I'm here. I think we're here because you want to hire me as a business coach, is that right? And you nod, right? And you (laughs) nod. So now I've got a yes, right? And now we're on, right? Now I've got to make sure that I don't lose it because you've actually agreed that that's why we're here. And people, comes back to behavioral science. People behave behave consistently with a thing that they've agreed to. So if you can set that agenda at the beginning, then I say, okay, brilliant. Look, we're here for an hour. What would make this a great use of your time? And you tell me what would make this a great, you set the agenda. You tell me what would be great about this hour. And then I say, look, I, 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 I coach, I coach clients like you all the time. Like just that's my positioning box. And then I say, so what's stopping you get, you know, where do you want to get to and what's stopping you getting there? And you tell me and I keep going. And then I say, yeah, no, I can help you with that. And then I pause. And eventually what do you say? How? Exactly. So that's it. You've bought. So now I tell, you, yeah. I tell you what we're going to do next and we move on. I absolutely do not write you a proposal. I, I, want, I would rather you said no. I'd rather you say yes. But if you don't say yes, I want you to say no, because I'm not writing you a proposal, because nobody has ever bought anything from a proposal. They are a complete and utter waste of time. What you need to do is more conversation, more discovery, less proposals. I, see, I, I mean, I, I was working with a guy a couple of years ago, and he said his sales team, their close rate was one in 10 of proposals. And I said, in your sales meeting, they're, talk, they're fearful because they have nothing in their pipeline. So they're doing proposals that they know they can't close because they want to have something to talk about. And that's, I find that all the time. I'd much rather the client said yes. But if he says no, then that's great because I'll focus my time on somebody who does want to buy.
0: It's easy, isn't it? That is easy. It's easy when you say it. Um, I'm going to, and for the last question, um, we're going to look at um, managing a team. The um, question here. So, how do, we, how do we strike a balance between um, empathy and driving a team for results, especially during this time?
1: Um, so, there's a great book by Marcus Buckingham called uh first break all the rules and in it he says it's what great managers know and what other people don't know and what great managers do is they spend 80 80 20 rule the pareto law applies right so great managers spend 80% of their time with their top 20% of talent all right so i think i think yes you have to be empathetic but unless your job is running a donkey sanctuary like Putting time and effort into Blackpool Beach donkeys and hoping they're going to win the national, it's just never going to happen. So, you know, you put your time and effort into making your top 20% amazing, you will you will get further than if you split your time evenly amongst all of your team and you try and carry your donkeys over the over Beaches Brook. Um, often I see particularly inexperienced managers spending too much of their time with people who are never going to make it. Uh, people spend, there's a great stat I saw, people say they spend 2% on recruitment and 78% of their time trying to fix their recruitment mistakes. Hmm. So, you know, it's, it's hire, better, hire people who can actually do the job. Give them, tell them where you want to get them, coach them, be empathetic. But, and I said again, I say it again, I've never seen a sales team missing its number when they were doing the right activity. And, uh, and, and the right activity has to have the right people because the right activity with the right, the activity needs to be done by people who love it. And I know one of the people on the QA said, show me the, show me the incentive and I'll show you the activity. And it's like, you can't pay people to do something that they can't do. It's, in, it's irrelevant. You can't pay me to do my expenses. You know, I, I'm rubbish at it and I'll do anything else instead. So, or maybe that's just cause I'm not money motivated. But, but I think that, uh, I I think that uh, you know that helping helping where people see the challenge and then and then coaching them through the challenge is is maybe the empathy thing you were referring to in terms of managers but ultimately we've got activity to hit and you know what you're trying to do is you're trying to get you're trying to get instead of saying oh i've got people above average so here's the thing if you were if you were a football manager you wouldn't say I'm going to hire somebody cheaper and not as good as my best player. That's not how you win the premiership. You say, I'm going to go into the market. I'm going to hire somebody better and I might have to spend more money. And so, you often, don't
0: support loose in town though, Dom. Honestly, <laughs> do <you?
1: laughs> so, uh, so I, I, I think it's, you know, work, spend all your time on helping your better people get better.
0: Brilliant. Thanks for that. Well, we've come to the end of the hour, Dom. Massive thanks to you. This has been hugely insightful and everyone who's listening. um, We're going to be on Spotify, so please tell your friends and family or anyone that you're working with. Dom, anything you'd like to leave us with?
1: Uh, No, look, it's been lovely to be on, Jack. Thanks very much for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure. Speak soon and looking forward to going out for dinner when this is all over. See you soon. (laughs) Cheers.
0: Bye, guys.